This is Smarter Cars, and I'm your host, Michelle Kairouz. Welcome to season six of the podcast. Today we're talking with Fred Jones from Tier, a German company that's become one of the biggest micromobility players in Europe. Fred, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Delighted to be here. Can you tell us a little about your background and how you came to be involved with micromobility? Absolutely. My career was, you know, the first 10 years were largely uneventful as a management consultant in the, in the city of London. And then I guess had that kind of moment 10 years in where I kind of really wanted to get into a startup, um, really interested in mobility and how cities were changing, you know, living in central London and, and just seeing, you know, how cars were really unsustainable, private use of cars were really unsustainable. And that time was back in late 2014. And so in 2015, joined Uber and spent just over five years there, you know, different roles. But in the end, I was the general manager for their rides business in the UK and Ireland. And then just actually, as the COVID pandemic hit, it really kind of accelerated, you know, some of the trends we've seen broadly across cities. And as cities came to a standstill, everyone was like, aren't they nicer with no cars in? You know, isn't this actually, uh, isn't this kind of cool? And, uh, you know, obviously I've been, I've been speaking to, to Lawrence at Tier uh, for a while and it just seemed like this, you know, incredible moment for micromobility and something I really wanted to get involved in to take my career, you know, in, in the next direction and then the next phase. And looking around at all the different companies out there, you know, I was just really struck with how Lawrence and his team were approaching it. And just from all my experiences, good and bad of the previous five years, I just thought not only are they approaching it this in the right way for cities and the longer term, but they really understood you know, the fundamentals of how to run a successful micromobility business and was just so captured by their vision to change mobility to good, the authenticity of you know, Lawrence's and Tia's commitment to sustainability. And so, yeah, joined that. And that was eight months ago, which has kind of flown by, but an incredibly exciting time. And what is your role at Tia? So at Tia, I'm the regional general manager for Northern Europe. So that includes the Nordics countries, where we have a very large presence uh, across all four of those. And then most recently, the UK, which is just trialing electric scooters. And, uh, you know, hopefully Ireland as well, which is looking to legalize scooters in the not too distant future. Can you tell us a little bit about TIER's operations in terms of an overview of the countries where TIER is operating and a little bit about the UK and what you're planning to do there? Absolutely. So TIER is Europe's largest micromobility provider. So we're in 10 countries and just over 90 cities. Originally started in Berlin uh, and, you know, kind of cohort quartered in, in Berlin, but we're in all the major cities across Europe and in the Middle East. So, you know, Berlin, Paris, Oslo, Stockholm, Lyon, you know, all, all the big cities you expect. But also, I think really importantly, it's not just about serving those really large metropolitan areas, but we're in some of the smaller satellite cities and towns as well. Uh, and so I've got really significant breadth uh, across the markets we're in. In terms of the UK, they fast-tracked in light of the pandemic, trialing e-scooter services. So it's a 12-month trial and the government department for transport is going to take data from all those trials and take that and inform what they think the future legislative landscape should look like. So it's a really interesting moment actually where 
you know, 12 months ago, you might say the, the UK has been quite slow to adopt micromobility. But what they've been able to do is, you know, look at actually some of the issues from the early movers and, and the challenges that cities had with micromobility. And they're conducting a really thorough analysis of it. And it's great that Tia's part of that. We're in, in York City to operate a thousand e-scooters and 50 e-bikes. And it's great to be able to contribute to that study and, and hopefully a, a successful and exciting future for e-scooters. And where do things stand with the London tender? So London tender is kind of ongoing. You know, it was uh, put out to the market just before Christmas, kind of conducting their assessments and, and going through the necessary checks and scrutiny that they need. And they indicated there might be a decision as we head into spring this year. Has TIER applied for permits to operate anywhere in the United States? So we haven't at the moment. Clearly, it's a really exciting market for micromobility. You know, with everything that TIER does, you know, we commit to cities for the long term. And it's not about getting as many scooters on the ground as quick as possible. And when we go into a new country, into a new city, we want to really understand how can we make our service work to the unique situation in that city. And one thing that's common across all our cities is they're all unique and everything there. So, you know, we're not in the US at the moment, but, you know, certainly it's uh, an attractive market. And when we do, we want to make sure that we've you know, really understood and, and can offer something really unique and, and valuable to cities and residents when we do. How do you think about cities in Europe in terms of where to operate or apply to operate? Obviously, you mentioned there are the big cities that everyone is looking to participate in. How do you look at secondary markets? Are you looking at things like density or cycling infrastructure, regulatory, how do you decide what might be economically viable for tier in those cities that are not the largest cities? Yeah, I mean, perhaps unsurprisingly, in, in some respects, the equation is quite simple. You need uh, a reasonable utilization of vehicles and it can't cost too much to operate <laughs> as simple as possible. Now, I think tier is advantaged, you know, as our recent Series C fundraise kind of demonstrated, you know, we're really operationally efficient. And some of the innovations we have, particularly with our energy network that allows users to swap batteries themselves, only adds to that. So actually our ability to operate in markets maybe which are slightly less dense or with slightly lower utilization is perhaps greater than other operators because we're much more efficient. We also run all our operations in-house. So we don't use gig work, we don't outsource it. That not only gives us much more control and keeps our vehicles in much better condition, but enables us to be much more efficient as well. So there's no kind of magic formula around density or cycleways. Uh, clearly different topographies can work. But actually, I think one of the universal uh, themes is, which is increasingly the case, which is positive for our business, is a city or transport authorities commitment and desire to tackle greenhouse gases, poor air quality, the climate emergency we're in. And so actually, I think, you know, when there's a sustained, consistent strategy to shift people to more sustainable modes of transport, naturally, our service will work better in, in those environments. We've seen London really increase their infrastructure for cycling and micromobility. How does that feel? You are in London. Does it feel different to be in London with additional infrastructure? It does. I mean, not that I've been out much. <laughs> um, so as with many Londoners, I spent probably far too much time in my spare bedroom. But, you know, what you do see, which was almost 
unimaginable 12 months ago is uh, much quieter on the streets when you do go out much more dedicated to cyclists to pedestrians and you see more people out walking cycling which i think is a good thing and it just makes high streets my local high street and areas much more pleasant actually and you kind of realize that it is possible and we are adaptable and rather than streets being shut off to cars it feels like they've been opened up to everyone else and so and i don't think you're going to find too many people who don't find that a positive experience and would want to go back to you know noise fumes etc certainly when i'm out with my family it's a much nicer experience let's talk about form factors tier i think started with electric kick scooters you mentioned e-bikes tell us about the different form factors that tier has and where you're introducing them yeah so we've got three form factors at the moment we've got the e-scooter which is obviously gone through multiple generations. I think we're on our fifth generation now. We have our e-moped in a number of cities and then also the e-bike, which we're launching in, in cities right now. We apply with all of those the same sort of passion and attention to detail on the hardware because it's such an important part, not just for safety, but the rider experience as well. And also the other hardware we have is our energy network power box. So you know, those vehicles powered by the same battery, say in the bike and the scooter, that can be charged in the power box. That power box can be plugged into the mains. It charges four of these swappable batteries. And you can sit it on the countertop of your local newsagent or paper store, in the foyer of your workspace, in a coffee chain, in the supermarket. And what that enables is not only can we swap the batteries with our teams, but you as a, a user can swap the battery yourself and in return, you get your next journey for free. And that's really a win-win. For us, it's clearly more efficient. So we can offer better service in more areas. It's great for the user because what's better than free travel? And that increases the access to our service. You know, so people who might be on a lower budget or be able to afford services typically now can. And then what we've seen from the cities where we have this service live in Finland is actually this is driving footfall back into local businesses. And there's never been a more critical time when we need to think about supporting the local high street. And the early studies are showing that it's around you know, 2,000 euros additional revenue per month per power box. And so it's a real kind of win-win-win if you're there as a transport or city planner where you think, how can we get people onto sustainable modes? How can we revitalize the high street and our public space and uh, how can we ease congestion as well so yeah we have a, a range of form factors but uniquely for tier the energy network which ties them all together your electric bikes and electric scooters will be using the same battery yes so you know in you know, york in in the uk we're going to have the scooter the bike and the the energy network all in one city all off the same battery and you know, should be able to create a really unique experience, not just for the user, but for the, the city as well. And we can show how we can tie this all together. And have you implemented the energy network, as you said, putting them in these shops around town? Ha has that already been implemented? It has. So last year was the first city was Tempera in Finland. So that's where we have the network up and running. And that's where we're getting a lot of this exciting data. You know, our plan this year, I think, is to install around 5,000 of these pods across all our cities uh, in Europe and in the Middle East. So a huge 
and exciting plans to expand that. It seems like the question of how to charge a battery in micromobility has been a big challenge for companies. Many of the scooter companies now are moving toward this idea of a swappable battery and certainly interchanging it with a, a bike and a scooter, having a single battery seems like a good idea. What are the pros and cons of using swappable batteries versus other ways to charge a device, maybe driving up to a dock on your local block and just charging it in the scooter? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question because we've seen lots of different models evolve. And you know, the truth is getting micromobility to work well is a complex factor of meeting lots of different needs. So it makes no sense economically, environmentally, from a safety perspective, to pick up your scooters every day, drive them around in a big van, back to a warehouse, have them knocking together. And you know what we've seen is the shift of the industry towards swappable batteries as people have realized that that model is, doesn't work. But with the swappable battery versus the dock, you know, one of the most important things for a city and for users is that the service is readily available. And that particularly now with finances of cities kind of stretched, installing charging docks is a very expensive affair. And if we just look at the last you know, 12 months as an example of how quickly travel patterns change, if you've made a big investment, maybe 10,000 euros, pounds, installing an electric docking station for, let's say, 10 scooters in a specific location, and then actually you need 20 scooters there or it's not in the right place anymore because now you want to move it somewhere else because people are using the city space differently. Or to really address car usage, you need lots of these right out into the suburbs. You know, it then becomes a massive financial commitment and then legacy to make that work. Whereas actually with the model we propose, we address the challenges of street clutter by you know, mandatory parking bays that we enforce through camera positioning technology, it costs maybe 80 euros <laughs> to create one of those. And if it doesn't work or you need to change it or increase it, you just clean off the paint lines and move maybe the rack and you can in install something or upgrade it very cheaply. So I think you know, the economics and the flexibility of a swappable battery service versus charging docks will always win out in the end because it really helps the city and the operator to customize the solution to work best for the local environment. And what about the cost to the scooter operator of purchasing more batteries? I, I don't know exactly how it works, but I'm imagining that you're increasing the cost of purchasing those and also the environmental piece of more batteries. How, how do you think about that? Yes, yeah, so you're right. You will need more than a one-to-one -one relationship to manage that and keep the fleet you know, active and usable for those. Clearly, the environmental component of that hugely depends on the operator and how they go about it. You know, sustainability is in Tears DNA. The fact that our you know, co-founder and CEO has pledged to give away his entire stake in the business to a fund to help save the planet, which he won't benefit from. He takes this incredibly seriously and that it flows through the entire organization. So we obviously make sure our batteries are ethically sourced, that we can recycle them. We never scrap a suit or, or battery. And so that's just built into our whole supply chain and logistics and helps us to be kind of climate neutral. So we do manage that impact responsibly, but also in the complex equation by having a swappable battery, you then 
when the battery needs to be replaced, you don't have to maybe throw away or you know, recycle or some companies scrap the entire scooter. So by componentizing it, actually, when you look at the system as a whole, it can be much more efficient and a better use of resources. So it's a really complicated puzzle that we, we piece together. But uh, yeah, we certainly see the, the swappable battery as being the future. How long does a battery last in terms of its charge? How often are you swapping out the battery? And then what mm. does it take to do the swap? It's, it's typically, I mean, they're, they're changing all the time, but typically a battery lasts about 10 trips, you know, on average, it, it weighs maybe just under a few kilograms. So it's certainly a pretty straightforward process to manage. In terms of the overall capacity, like all batteries, and we've seen with cars, dependent on weather. So batteries aren't as efficient in the cold, and we've had a particularly tough time, as you'll know, <laughs> particularly harsh winter. So that affects things, so it's a little bit different from winter and summer. But yeah, on average, about 10 trips. And so having it be interchangeable, is there a downside for the bike? Or do you have to make the battery bigger on your scooter? How does that work? It actually, um, it, it's actually the scooter, because the bike can be pedaled and it's like a pedal assist, you know, actually, I mean, it depends on how it's used and the terrain, but it's pretty energy efficient. The scooter as well, obviously entirely powered by the battery. There's a few extra bits on the scooter. So we have a smart box with a integrated crash helmet. We've got all the lights always on, we've got indicators. So, you know, there's a little bit more energy usage on the scooter, but yeah, it actually works fine. There's not a significant difference where you undermine the effectiveness of, of one mode for the other. How would you compare the regulatory environment and rules that you're seeing in Europe? So generally seeing things like parking as being much more important, the quality of the vehicles. I think also sustainability has really come to the fore and people want someone who can provide a service not just to replace cars but is delivered in the right way that by climate neutral operators that you know have to the point around batteries and the vehicle have high recycling rates good end-of-life policies believe in circular economy uh, principles so we're seeing that as a really important thing you know particularly in the nordics countries and in paris for example but i think paris is a great sort of case study that has shown how the regulatory environment has changed from the early days when they were kind of flooded to then the really extensive tender process that they had and now the much more controlled uh, system with mandatory parking and much more kind of order and the benefits that that's delivering this, the city as they look to encourage you know active travel and, and, and more travel by bike and scooter and like really proud of Tears role in that. We were one of the smallest but we were the first before it was required to implement mandatory parking and really pioneered you know that technical solution and that way of working which was adopted by the city and is really shown to be a success in, in integrating this new mode of transport into, you know, cities are complex places and there's a lot of competition and, and different use for the precious space in them. Let's talk about technology. Uh, a number of providers have adopted different technological solutions to assist in complying with city rules, whether it's sidewalk detection to understand when someone is riding on the pavements when they shouldn't be or 
parking compliance to understand whether you've properly parked the scooter in order to end the ride. How is Tier thinking about technology and uh, what are some of the solutions that you've implemented? Yeah, it's a really big focus for us, unsurprisingly, because it's so important to a safe and orderly service. So, you know, we were big early investors in GPS and now we're continuing that innovation with some of our new technologies. So perhaps picking up parking first, GPS is the default mechanism that that companies use to locate and control where their scooters are. But frankly, in urban environments, on days of poor weather, it's not accurate enough to deliver the precision and control cities need. And so what we use now in partnership with a great company called Phantasma from California is camera positioning technology. So what we do is create a 3D map of the city and the parking areas. And then at the end of the ride, you have to scan the scooter and you, using your phone, capture the surroundings. And from that data, we can compare it with the 3D map and know with real precision, kind of 10, 20 centimeters, exactly where the scooter is. And there's no dependency on signal. You know, there's no interference. And so it's a much more accurate and reliable service. And we're really excited to be rolling that out. It's a, a really new innovation. And I think will set the standard for how parking needs to be managed in the future. In terms of things like pavement riding, there's been a lot of focus on the controls to correct bad behavior. And I think there's absolutely a role for when bad actors persistently ride irresponsibly on a dangerous measure. You need to stop that. You need to take action. And, you know, we're doing all, all the good things in that space. But the way we look at it is always how do you stop something happening in the first place? That's the way of delivering a really safe service rather than always being on the back foot. And you know, when you do the research, a lot of people, well-intentioned, they don't want to ride on the pavement, but they end up riding on the pavement either because they don't understand or that they don't feel safe on the road. And they might hop onto the pavement because, hang on, you know, the junction's coming up there's too many cars about, or I don't quite know how to get safely to my destination. And so we're solving that by looking at the rider experience. We're, we're starting with the vehicle. So the tier vehicle has a much larger wheel than most. Dual suspension, it's really sturdy. A wide foot plate, so you, know, you don't feel wobbly on there. It's got indicators, so you can communicate with other vehicles where you want to turn. Don't take your hand off. You've got a integrated phone holder with a map that tells you where to go. We've got navigation that we can customize so you can see what the quiet routes are or the segregated cycleways. And along with the crash helmet as well, we're just helping people feel much more confident and safe on the road. And so they're not forced to go onto the pavement. And so this dual approach, I think, can really help reduce some of those instances. It's just how we're trying to think things a little bit differently to integrate this new mode into how cities move. And do you anticipate additional technology development around these ideas of how we can help manage users who are acting inappropriately or guide people in the right direction? Absolutely. The, you know, the pace of innovation, software and hardware in the industry at the moment is phenomenal. I mean, just the fact that Tier is just over two years old and we're on our fifth generation of scooter just tells you how quickly... So it feels like a kind of three to six month period where there's the latest technology and then suddenly that's old news because the next iteration uh, is coming out. So it'll be no surprise that we're busy working on a lot of pretty exciting things that are going to reset the bar on some of those technologies. 
You mentioned your latest version of your kick scooter. How long do your scooters last today? And <laughs> what are the innovations that you've made around durability and, and safety? Yeah, absolutely. So our current scooter will last over five years. Now, clearly, we've only been around just over two and a half years. So, you know, Fred, how on earth can you say that? When you kind of model out the wear and tear, you can see that that's the theoretical lifespan. But I think I understand because it's easy to compare to focus on lifespan. But actually, the way we design our scooter, it's not quite the right way of thinking about it because we make and design our scooters in a very modular way. So every bit can be replaced recycled reused and so actually you know we're prolonging the life of the scooter in that way by the design and how we design and replace the components we also do a lot of you know a lot of the innovation is i'd say kind of under the skin and you can't see around the diagnostics on the scooter understanding wear and tear and the preventative maintenance cycle so actually for all the different components understanding when they're likely to fail and proactively maintaining them and checking them and replacing them before they do that. And obviously makes the service safer, but also stops any critical failures in the scooter and prolonging its life because you're ensuring that it's um, in tip-top condition for a longer period of time. So you know, the, our next kind of iterations, a lot of the cool stuff we're working on probably won't be obvious <laughs> to the person riding it, but behind the scenes, it's helping us really extend the life of the asset is helping us be much more efficient, you know, in our operations uh, and how they, to keep the scooters running. So when we think about sustainability of scooters, we shouldn't be thinking about how long a single vehicle lasts because, in fact, they're being taken apart and very modular and different parts will last different periods of time and be reused together with other parts. Is that fair? Exactly. And, you know, it's an interesting topic. I'm learning loads about it, but it's incredibly geeky when you get into it. But, you know, you, you see a lot of the, the press releases and the commentary now and people saying, you know, 100% of our scooter parts can be recycled. Well, that's kind of great. Fine. That's pretty common, actually. What you need to look is how much of the existing scooter is recycled. You know, what percentage of the parts, you know, have been reused and how is that evolving over time? And so, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's incredibly technical, but, but that's exactly the approach we're taking and thinking about this modular design and how we constantly refine it. It seems like vehicle design and operational efficiency go hand in hand. I think that's something it's taken a little while for the scooter industry to fully incorporate. How have the improvements to scooter design helped to improve your operational efficiency? I mean, it's been really important, <laughs> you know, fu fundamental. I think there's three components of it. There's the vehicle design. There's the technology we use to manage our operations. And then there's our workforce that we in-house. So those are probably the three big building blocks. But you know, part of TIR's success and rise to be the European leader has been the focus on the hardware uh, and has been an understanding that you need to kind of really look after the assets, prolong its life, keep it in great condition that then people want to use and feel safe on and it can't be vandalized easily. And we were the first company that was profitable throughout the year. That was a core part of our recent fundraise. As people understand that we've cracked the operational side and the hardware to make this a sustainable business. With respect to safety and riding, you mentioned sometimes people don't feel safe riding on the street. How much of safety is about your vehicle design 
how much is rider education and how much is just city infrastructure, which perhaps you can't control as a company, you need cities to, to build. How do you think about those things for safety? You're absolutely right. It's all of those. In our relentless strive you know, to make the service safe, and we believe that no accident is inevitable. We can get to a place where no one comes to harm, both the rider or non-rider from using our service. But to deliver that vision, you need to focus on all components. And actually, I think TIER has a, a really positive role to play in all of them, obviously with the vehicle design, you know, with education as well, uh, and what we do through the app, not just for first-time riders, but repeat education. Again, not just through the app, but physical events that we run as well to help people get used to the new technology. But also with the cityscape, we collect a lot of data on, we've got various partnerships and ways of detecting accidents or near misses, you know, demand heat maps of where people use our service, when and how, you know, that's hugely valuable for a city to help them understand how to best configure their road layout to make it safer. Can we spot you know, an accident hotspot around a junction maybe that could benefit from a segregated cycleway? Do we see popular routes between residential areas and you know, downtown or, or social hotspots? Can that help with better road service, better lighting, etc.? So there's a whole bunch of data that we have that can be hugely valuable and we share with our city partners to help them think through urban design and you know, kind of enact on, on the side of safety that they control. Is there other infrastructure around parking or places for maintenance to occur or things like that that cities could address? The parking question is a really interesting one because it's actually really complicated because the easy place to start is thinking, well, where do I want some parking for these scooters that's going to be good for the riders? But actually, that's just a small component of, of the question. Actually, you need to think about, well, look, first of all, how uh, are these scooters when parked going to interact with other members of society? Particularly, something we made a real priority is people of the community who suffer from sight loss. So for them, trip hazards, whether it being a parking rack or a scooter that's there will fallen over, it's, it's a real issue, both that it actually causes physical harm or that it creates anxiety and prevents people from moving around the city. And that's, you know, that's not acceptable. So when we think about it, we've created to solve those problems. Not only do we engage with those communities to help us identify and surface and preempt those issues, but we've partnered with who are a, a navigation and wayfinding app for those suffering with sight loss. And we plug in the scooter parking location. So people using that service to navigate the city are now alerted of a new parking spot. So, you know, there's some clever ways, again, that we can do to, to think about how we how we fit that in. Yeah. And, and standing in a city's shoes to make sure we find the, the right location for it. And then you know, the other you know, coming from the UK, a lot of historic cities here, you know, York, medieval centre, you've got to think about the aesthetics as well. And we want to make sure that, you know, scooters fit in with the public realm. I mean, so you've got, you know, there's some conservation considerations as well in that respect. So it's an incredibly complex puzzle, but we can, we're, we're coming up with a number of different ways to, to try and unlock it for cities. 
In the United States, many cities have concerns about micromobility competing with public transit, buses and trains and things. Is that an issue that Tier thinks about in Europe? Are you working with public transit organizations? I know things are a little different with COVID, but how are you thinking about where micromobility fits in the, the overall transportation picture in Europe? Yeah, well, yeah, with the public transport authorities, yeah, absolutely. Tier is not trying to build a walled garden where everyone has to come to our app and you can only get our service through the Tier app. So we have, I think it's around 27 plus integrations with public transit authorities already. And that's not just uh, being able to book and use our service through their apps, but also in Helsinki, for example, you can buy public transit tickets through the Tier app. So for us to succeed and solve cities' problems, we have to be a team player in part of the broader transport mix. Now, you're onto the point around competing with walking and active travel. I can answer that best perhaps by data, which is the average trip on a tier scooter is over two kilometers. And actually, in you know some of the cities in the UK in the recent trials where we're specifically tailoring our service to support bus routes that now can't operate during COVID, the average trip duration is around 25 minutes. Now, Clearly, there will be some people who walk a lot that may substitute their walking for for a scooter trip. I think you know that's inevitable. Very much how bus or car can can take over some walking trips. But if you look at that data, we're filling a gap where people wouldn't typically. It's not just jumping on a scooter to go 500 meters or 800 meters or a kilometer down down the road. They are using our scooters for meaningful journeys. And so I think we are plugging an important gap in the transport mix. Can you tell us how COVID has impacted Tier's operations in Europe this past year and how you see the next year or so playing out for the company? Are rides <laughs> coming back? Do you see growth? Yeah, I mean, it's been a crazy old year and it, it's had a number of different impacts. I mean, I think fundamentally COVID has brought micromobility and tiers business to the forefront. I mean, as an industry and us uh, individually, it really has accelerated this shift away. And the notion of cities and authorities to build back better, build back greener, I think is a, is a consistent theme across. So as a whole, strange as it is, and the, the devastating impact of the virus is for our industry, at least, it's really accelerated adoption. Clearly, it's presented challenges for running our business like every other business. We're chatting from our spare bedrooms and we've had to adapt. The speed at which we responded to the new challenges, we're able to implement cleaning protocols and sanitation meant that we were the only operator to operate through the first lockdown last summer and were you know, profitable throughout. So we're actually able to adapt and respond to that. And increasingly, people see scooters as now a safe, socially distanced way of getting around. So I suspect that hopefully there are the opening up of economies and the rollout of vaccines, etc. is not too far away. But I think as long as those concerns linger, people see e-scooters, e-bikes is actually kind of a safer, socially distanced way to get around. And clearly our business is, is very well positioned for that change. 
And looking at the year ahead, are there places where you are planning to introduce the e-bikes and e-mopeds going forward? Is there a plan for the year in terms of expansion? Absolutely. You know, we've we've been on a phenomenal growth trajectory to date. We absolutely foresee that continuing and, and demand for our service across new countries and new cities and in existing countries operating. The approach for tier, whilst we've delivered phenomenal growth, has always been to do so responsibly. We've never launched without the permission of a city and without agreeing ways of working, either through a formal tender or, or memorandum of understanding. So we're going to grow in the right way and in a responsible way. But um, you know, we've certainly got a ambitious plans for all modes over the coming 12 months. Terrific. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast to tell us about what tier is doing. Absolutely delighted. Really appreciated uh, speaking to you and really enjoyed it. Thanks again to Fred for joining us. You can find the show notes for this episode on our Substack publication at smartercars.substack.com. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.